You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Anago, as well as the Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Wisconsin. Not joining me as always is my good friend and the founder of BrewHoop.com, Frank Madden. It is a Thursday night, so Frank is out. So that means I have a very special guest. It will be Jeff Siegel from Peachtree Hoops. Uh, I will get to the interview I recorded with him in just a little while, obviously. Uh, Looking for more perspectives on Coach Boonholzer and kind of what he is all about. But before we do that, you know, I wanted to catch up a a little bit on some of the news that has occurred and uh, some of the things that that have happened. So um, I guess the the big thing is that it is now officially official, even though it was reported yesterday, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks now have officially announced that they've named Mike Boonholzer their next head coach. So that was kind of the news of the day. Uh, The Combine was going on today in Chicago as well. Uh, Matt Velasquez from the Journal Sentinel was able to catch up with Giannis Dedekumbo, who is there, uh, because his brother Kostas at Dedekumbo um, was there. And if you saw, I'm trying to think who it was uh, that had it, but somebody asked Kostas a little bit about uh, who he is and um, what he's all about and, and a player comp for him. And, um, he it's kind of a it's kind of funny but it was uh ricky o'donnell from uh sb nation had asked him who he compares himself to as a player costas responded who's a big man who can run and jump ricky said clint capella and costas said yes i'm like clint capella um so just kind of funny uh to hear him say that but Giannis was there for costas and uh his time at the combine uh so while he was there matt velasquez was able to catch up with him and ask him a little bit about you know kind of what he what he thought of mike budenholzer as the new head coach and um all of that um most importantly, though, he did ask where they had breakfast. Uh, Giannis refused to give up the secret location. He said that they had a private place, a private little area that we went to, me and Chris and Bud. And by the way, the food was great there. So um, if we have some super sleuths out there that can figure out exactly where that is, that sounds great. Um, but more importantly, he asked a, a, a little bit about, you know, kind of, Budenholzer and how it felt to actually have him in place as you head into the off season and. Yana said, it's exciting. I'd like to get the chance to talk to him again before I start working out. I'd love to work out in his plan. I want to see our plays. I want to see the game plan. I want to make myself better through his game. Yeah, I think it's 
going to be exciting. I can't wait to play for him. Hopefully we can win some games. So um, not anything too uh, earth-shattering from Giannis um, in his conversation there. Not that you'd necessarily expect there to be, but um, still notable that he was able uh, to talk about it and that the Bucks were able to make the job official. Um, I'm trying to th- I don't think there's really any other notes uh to really go through, um, obviously there will be some names that come out uh, as we figure out exactly who the Bucks are working out uh, this season. Uh, the draft workouts in Milwaukee, um, typically after a draft workout in the past, uh, the media has had access to the players that had worked out and get a chance to talk to them. Um, that is not something that will happen this year. Players will not be made available uh, after draft workouts. But surely as we kind of go through all of this, uh, I'm sure names will come out and we'll get to hear uh, some of the players that worked out for the Bucks and um maybe their potential pick at 17. So uh, we'll get to hear a little bit more about that going forward. One thing I wanted to touch on, uh, no news or notes or anything like that, but before we we get to uh, my chat with Jeff Siegel from Peachtree Hoops, one thing that I found interesting was I was kind of I was kind of thinking through some of the the thoughts that people have about the Boonholzer hire, and I guess just some of the general ideas about him, as well as this roster. And one thing that kind of stuck out to me was just kind of how people view this Bucks team, uh, and I, it was kind of well summarized in a point that. Rachel Nichols had brought up on the jump earlier this week, and she was talking about how she was talking with Brad Stevens, uh, I I would assume in between the uh, semis and the Eastern Conference Finals, and had said something about like, oh, it seems like, you know, you and the you and the Sixers are destined to do this for years to come. That'll be you too. And she said that Brad Stevens actually interjected and said, don't forget about the Bucks." And I just think it, that stuck out to me, one, because obviously, you know, the Bucks played the Celtics, so he's going to show respect to the, the teams that they had played. But also, I just think there's generally an, an idea about this Bucks team that they're, they're really far off and that, you know, the Celtics and Sixers have clearly surpassed them. And I think from an asset standpoint, that's certainly true. Like, they do have... There's no doubt about it that those two teams have more assets. Um, And you kind of think about all the things that the Celtics have, all the picks that they have, Hayward and Irving coming back. And you think about the Sixers and their young guys and uh, some max cap space this summer. Like, so I certainly understand why, you know, that future you might be able to project, add in some more things and being able to find some more stuff. But uh, just from, you know, kind of a, on the floor perspective, I think I think people tend to sleep on the Bucks, and we saw throughout this season when we heard about how you know it's just not a very talented team in, in Milwaukee. It's Giannis and some guys, and I just think there's some level of you know this Bucks team getting slept on when you think about uh, the players that they have and kind of my belief as we've talked about in the past that I don't think good role players play on poorly coached teams like that's just not something that happens so uh, i think there's going to be a certain level of improvement from most of their role guys as uh, you see them actually get used in a in a good way they get 
put into roles that suit them and they're able to execute at a higher level. I, I think that comes about. And I just think this team generally will play better um, because of Mike Boonholzer not actively hurting them as a coach like Jason Kidd had, like Joe Prunty had. So uh, I don't know. It's just kind of a, a weird conversation and just something that ends up sticking out in my mind quite a bit that this is a team that I don't feel is is really that far off. And really, I think if you got a chance to replay this season 99 more times, so you play this season 100 times, I think more often than not, this team wins more than 44 games. And the reason I say that is I think generally they had poor injury luck this season. Obviously, uh, Jabari Parker was going to be out for most of the season uh, or was going to be out for a good portion of the season. But when you look at how brutally how brutally they were hurt at the point guard position at the end of the season. Like I think most of the times, maybe those, those injuries get spread out a little bit. And as much as people may not like Delhi, I think he would have been more capable than Brandon Jennings. And I think you'd be able to squeeze a few more wins out there. Or, you know, maybe if it's vice versa, if instead of, Delhi and Brogdon being hurt and instead of you know just Brogdon being hurt it's just Delhi getting hurt I think you win a few more games as well so I don't know it, it's just interesting to hear people and where they think this Bucks team is and what this this hire of Budenholzer can do for them um, you know how much it can help and uh, you know where they can actually end up next season so I thought that was interesting and then one other thing I I I heard this the other week when I was listening to the low post and at the time I didn't really think about it that much. You know, I just kind of put, put a note uh, of it in my mind, but I, I didn't think about it a ton, but there was this really interesting story from Kevin Arnovitz. It was a story he told about a conversation he had with Al Horford. And I thought it was really interesting because it, it sheds some light on Mike Boonholzer and, you know, kind of how he may feel about things. It, sh- it sheds some light on uh, this Bucks team and their future. And I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, he was talking about the Celtics and what they were able to do in the playoffs and, you know, how impressive it was that their defense was working. But he told an anecdote from Horford's time in Atlanta and kind of what he meant to their defense. So let's listen to that real quick, and then uh, I want to talk about it for a second. There are two ways to kind of approach elite defense. One is you have a, and I, for, the, for that matter, offense. You have a system. Uh, it, it, it is well-tuned. The personnel is well-tailored for it. You go out and you execute defensively. Golden State has done this recently. Um, Houston's doing it this year. Or it's, we're really adaptable, right? Like, we can kind of have an yeah, we have we have coverage tendencies, um, but we we kind of play ad hoc to matchups. And what's brilliant about us is we have really smart players, and we can kind of we can conform a, an individual game plan or even a possession uh, to whatever the game demands. And if you have a guy like Al Horford, I remember having this great conversation with Horford in Atlanta, where like they were doing some things on that number two defense team, and I, I, I talked to him after the game, and I was like. Wait, your coverage was completely different. He's like, oh, yeah, that was a read. I'm like, wait, wait a read? Because I always associated reads with offense. He's like, no, 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 we do defensive reads. So if I want to go apply pressure, Bud kind of lets me do that. Like, if Damari sees something, you know, they'll do kind of what, what he described as sort of the LeBron in 2012, where they would just, like, stunt and, like, and then pressure and come back. And and I thought that was really interesting because that is how good Boston is, is they are essentially – Obviously, they have a coverage plan. Um, I mean, they, they've got a system that they're working in this series. But, like, they're so intuitive and so trusting and so confident. 
and in the personnel that they can just, you know, they are throwing things at Philadelphia that Philadelphia just uh, doesn't have the capacity or collective experience together as a unit to really deal with. So what I found interesting there is that in a way it lays out some of the blueprints for the Bucks for how they will become an elite defensive team. And I know that's something that people really want, right? You want this Bucks team to be elite defensively. They were very good offensively this past year without particularly great schemes. And if you have, you know, that top seven offense that they were this year and you pair that with an elite defense, you have a really good basketball team that wins a lot of games. So I guess kind of what I was interested by was that, that idea that, you know, one, you either have a system and it's well-tuned and the personnel is well-tailored for it. And that idea is something that's been lacking in Milwaukee. The The personnel has not been well-tailored for the scheme that they've been using. It hasn't been well-tuned. It hasn't been a system that makes sense. So I thought, okay, you know, that would be nice to see, that system. And then this other idea that, you know, the team could be really adaptable and you have coverage tendencies, but you kind of play to those matchups and try to figure out exactly how to do it. And then the Al Horford anecdote was, was sort of crazy to me because one, because as Kevin mentioned, you don't really hear about teams making reads on defense. And I think the, the overarching idea is, wow, that's really exciting that Boonholzer gives his teams the freedom to do that defensively. And I do have to think that a large reason for why they were able to do that was their personnel. Because uh, you you think about Al Horford and what he's done in Boston and obviously what he did in Atlanta at that time on that team when they were the number two defense in the league, you had Paul Millsap, who's been, uh, you know, kind of a destroyer of worlds at times defensively as well as he's able to do a number of different things, whether that's switching, whether that's uh, getting out into passing lanes, whether that's trapping, whether that's guarding the post, like he's able to do a lot of things. And then you think about Damari Carroll, who was a very strong defender when he was at Atlanta before his legs kind of got messed up and he had, he dealt with some injuries. Like before all that, you had a number of guys that were, I mean, you, in those three guys, you have three guys that were, you know, all defense type material. And then you throw in Kyle Korver, who just is long, lanky and able uh, to execute a defensive scheme. And Jeff T who, who might not be the best defender, but certainly that, if you have all those other guys playing strong defense, maybe you can hide them a little bit there. And I, I'd, I'm I'm very curious, and we get into this a little bit as I talk with Jeff tonight, um, but I am curious how much of the defensive success that Budenholzer had was system-based and how much of it was personnel-based. Because that that Horford anecdote right there suggests more of that really adaptable um having coverage tendencies, but also figuring out ways to do matchups. But in that, to do that, you have to have great defenders. You have to have guys that can really understand how to move with one another, how to cover up certain things, how to make sure you're taking away other things. Like You all have to have a great understanding for how to play good defense. And I think that's a major question mark in Milwaukee. I think you have a guy in Giannis who can move in that way. 
think you have a guy in Chris Middleton who can move in that way. I think Tony Snell is a good defender. Maybe he is a Damari Carroll comp. Um, and then on the rest of the team, like we saw Eric Bledsoe, his concentration kind of move in and out uh, throughout the season. And then at the center position, maybe you have a guy in Thon Maker that can do some of those things, but also maybe not. And same thing with John Henson. So I'm curious to see, like, just hearing that anecdote makes me think about a lot of things. Like, one, do the Bucks have enough good defenders? But if those three defenders that I mentioned in Giannis, Middleton, and Snell are good enough, are similar in ways to Horford, uh, Millsap, and Damari Carroll, maybe just a little bit smaller. Um, instead of a 5-4 and a 3, it's a 4-3 and a 2. Can they do some of those same same things? Is this, uh, in a way, what can unleash Giannis Adetokounmpo as a defensive player of the year candidate? Because we saw flashes of that last year, um, or excuse me, two years ago now at this point where he was averaging almost two blocks and two steals per game. So I don't know. It just kind of made my imagination run wild. Um, I'm curious kind of what anyone else thinks of that. Um, and if you're if you're leaning more towards, okay, that's scary. I don't know if the Bucks have enough defenders or if you think more that, okay, this is finally the moment that the Bucks will be able to unleash Giannis as this great defender that is the key piece into this larger defense. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It, it was just something that in the past I would have just blown by because Mike Boonholzer was not the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, but now that he is, um, it was something that I kind of revisited and wanted to think through a little bit because I, I think there's, there's good ideas in both. Like just having a system that the team could execute could be great. Like there's a number of people that we thought were good defenders going into the season and people that we think can be good defenders. Um, so, you know, just getting a system that they can execute could be really awesome. But at the same time, having that adaptability, having that uh, ability to read one another, that ability to do uh, different things within a, a single possession, being able to do different things within a single quarter, like there's a lot of excitement to me in that as well. So I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to watch, but uh, just another thing that, you know, I, I started to think about. So uh, that is going to be it for, you know, my little time here is just, you know, catching you guys up on some stuff I was thinking about and uh, some of the news and notes of the day. But now we will get into the main event, which is my conversation with Jeff Siegel from Peachtree Hoops. Um, and again, I kind of did this with Kale Chenard last week, and uh, Frank and I have talked about Mike Boonholzer throughout all of this, and I really want to keep trying to cultivate knowledge on Mike Boonholzer because I only have so much from the outside. So talking to the people that actually know the stuff is always big to me and always something that I want to do. So that's exactly what we did here. Joining me today for another perspective on Mike Budenholzer is Jeff Siegel, writer at Petri Hoops, and he does a whole other lot of different things and Jeff and I were talking about it, and it might take up the rest of the podcast if I tried to break down the rest of the places that he writes and works. So um, let's just say right here at Peachtree Hoops. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Just uh, wanted to thank you for having me on. And, and yeah, if, if we uh, if we wanted to go through all the different places that I, I do stuff, we would you know, it'd, it'd be too long. So for this particular exercise, I think it makes the most sense just to uh, 
to call me a writer of Peachtree Hoops because we're talking about Bud, and I've got a lot of uh, experience with him, obviously, over the last five years. All right, so I guess hopping into it, I think the one thing with Boonholzer that everyone kind of finds very attractive is the fact that, you know, he is from the pop tree. Um, he's typically very adept at putting together systems and, you know, on both sides of the ball and making sure that guys understand those things. Um, so let's start offensively. Offensively, what should, what should Bucks fans expect? Um, I know, uh, Frank and I have talked about it a little bit in the last couple of weeks. So like, you know, sometimes the Spurs system is something that you should be very excited about. And then other times, well, you know, the Spurs currently don't have the most modern outlook on the game um there isn't a ton of threes and and maybe there are some moments where it doesn't quite look like uh the beautiful basketball that it has over the years so uh, i guess what should bucks fans expect offensively for coach brudenholzer yeah i think like you said the spurs and, and the hawks under bud like they have this this sort of reputation of being this beautiful motion-based offense and it's you know, th- that certainly was true for, for Budenholzer in Atlanta for the first few years, in the Al Horford years especially. Like, he's just such a good passer. You know, we're seeing that in these playoffs, how, you know, how good he is as an offensive fulcrum. And they sort of, they used that. They used him extensively as as that sort of high post passer. And Paul Millsap was part of the team as well. And they had Korver coming off screens. And it was really, you know, beautiful to watch in that 2014-15 season especially. But then as soon as they sort of pivoted away from Horford and they went with Dwight Howard and they went with Dennis Schroeder as the starting point guard, all of a sudden now it's it's a much more sort of pick and roll type scheme. And this past year was much, much more, you know, much heavier in the pick and roll stuff as well. So I think he's the, the most important thing. The most important thing that Bud brings to the table is the adaptability to being able to go with, you know, multiple different systems based on the personnel that he has, you know, in those, those years with Horford, he was very egalitarian and everybody got to touch the ball and it was very, it was, you know, it was very beautiful. And now it's a little, you know, these past couple of years, it's been a little, you know, it's, it's, it's been a little more like the Spurs are these days where it's, you know, there was a lot of ISO ball for Paul Millsap in, in the 2016, 17 season. There's been a lot of pick and roll, a lot of just high pick and roll for Dennis Schroeder. And I think, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see. He's never had a star, obviously, like, uh, like Giannis and, you know, it's obviously he had that that kind of superstar in in San Antonio with Tim Duncan and and um, Kawhi Leonard after that. But in terms of his you know his team and his own superstar, it's going to be really interesting to see you know what kind of what kind of new things that that Bud will bring to the table for Giannis. I guess one thing I've been curious about with um, with the idea of adaptability is that. Like there, to me, there's no doubt that Budenholzer is, as you kind of watch through the film, like his teams have adapted with the personnel that they have, but uh, to some extent, like also, well, the Hawks offense has struggled at times uh, when they are adaptable and doing different things and again a lot of the times I think you could say, well, you know, if Dennis Schroeder is your best offensive creator, well, you're not going to be very good offensively. Um, and and I, I can, I guess the thing I struggle with is there is adaptability, but I don't know if we've seen him have success in some of those other ways. Um, these last three seasons, the offense has been bottom third of the league or so. So what do you pin that down on offensively? Is it just, you, you know, that they didn't have the personnel that could actively score or were there some other things uh, that were a little bit concerning? I mean, I think it, it does come back to, to the personnel for me, at least it does. I think 
right after that 2014-15 season where they won 60 games and they went to the conference finals. Bud, you know, Bud was uh, was promoted and had the the dual role of being president and coach. And then he started to sort of make the roster. And obviously, that's not something he's going to do in Milwaukee. I would be surprised if anybody gives him that opportunity again because it didn't go very well. Like he just, you know, Paul Millsap left for nothing, and and uh, Al Horford left, and they signed Dwight Howard instead of Horford. Like there was a very clear. They got to choose between the two paths and they chose Howard and how much that falls on Bud versus the owners versus, you know, the other staff members is, is you know, unknown to us. But it's very much a a sore spot in in sort of Atlanta's fans' minds about Bud. And I think so in terms of getting back to his real his actual coaching, his presidential operations sort of messed up his coaching operation because, you know, he ended up with Dennis Schroeder and Dwight Howard and that's you know, it's very hard to build a, a coherent offense around those two guys. Looking as well in these last three years, I guess one thing that I'd, we had kind of compared and contrasted uh, Mike Boonholzer with Steve Clifford. And offensively, one thing I liked with Steve Clifford uh, across the board, his offenses rarely turned the ball over. Like they were top five turnover percentage pretty much every single year that he was in Charlotte. And to me that with this Bucks team, like, okay, maybe you don't necessarily have to make it a, you know, like a James Harden, incredible offensive system around Giannis. But if you can limit turnovers and just manage to keep scoring, like this year, the, the Bucks were the seventh ranked offense in the entire league. And, it was ugly. It was not very good basketball. Uh, but as long as you don't turn it over, like Giannis is good enough that you're going to have a good offense. Chris Middleton's talented enough. Eric Bledsoe's talented enough. So I guess I see the high turnover numbers. Again, I, I guess I'll just ask, personnel, or is there something, uh, you know, when you are trying to create that beautiful basketball, making a lot of passes, was there something there as well? There is something there, and I think it has – you know, a lot to do with his reputation as as Hawks University, as as Atlanta has sort of grown into over the last few years under Bud. He's very empowering on the players who are not quite as good. You know, he he mm-hmm. gave this past year he gave Kent Bazemore free reign, run as many pick and rolls as you want. <laughs> Kent Bazemore's not that good at that. I mean, he's just not. Yeah. And Torian Prince like led the league in turnover percentage basically, and he ran a bunch of pick and rolls and a bunch of isolations down the end of the year just to develop those guys and, and pay those dues in the in the first few years so that, you know, maybe those guys can develop and, and obviously Baysmore's a little bit older, but Prince, it's been a it's been a, a key point for them to continue to develop his offensive game. He came into you know, he came into his rookie year and he he was not really much of an offensive player. And now, you know, he shot almost forty percent last year from three and he's you know, he's at least able to handle the ball a little bit. And he's not going to ever be like the primary guy, but it's all a part of that development. And so I think some of the the turnover numbers sort of feed into that. Obviously, the more passes and the more sort of risky plays you're making in, in that motion-based offense and the more decisions that everybody has to make and that if anybody's on the wrong page with somebody else, then it's going to be a turnover. Those things lend themselves to a high turnover rate. But I, I think it has more to do with the fact that he – he likes to empower the guys who are not necessarily the primary ball handlers to do things that are outside their comfort zone to help them develop. And, you know, sometimes that goes well and other times it can go uh, pretty poorly. I think largely Bucks fans get upset with me um, because they 
I think for the most part, Bucks fans love the idea of Mike Budenholzer and are very excited about it. And uh, I tend to, you know, kind of pick at the scabs and ask questions about what are what are some of the reasons for those things to exist. So um, I'm going to go in the opposite direction here. What is something that like what do you absolutely love about Mike Budenholzer's offense and kind of what they do on that side of the ball? Hmm. What I love, I mean, I love obviously the the beautiful aspect of the of the motion based system that he had in the first few years, and the necessary evils that come with that in terms of turnovers and in terms of empowering the players. I think that's that's some, something that I can get past personally. Like I don't see a high turnover rate in automa- and and I don't I know sort of where that comes from and how and why that 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 rate exists and why that number is so high. So I think it's it's always nice to see you can come you go back and you look at like Kent Bazemore's film from last year and you can sort of see how he got better throughout the year mm. and that's I think the best part about having Bud as the coach and not just offensively or defensively just watching the players get so much better is is for me is it was the most fun part and the mo- and the best part about covering the team and and you know sort of uh, watching them every night and I think that's interesting because uh, one of the things that I know we've been talking about it on the podcast is just kind of the idea like Giannis is going to continue to get better and he's, he's been able to do that. And Chris Middleton is, I don't want to say fully formed as an offensive player, but awfully close. And the, the spot where I think a lot of people were hoping for more from, from the bucks in general were some of those role players, like a, a guy like Tony Snell, a guy like Thon maker. Um, and I think to me, that must to me, that feels like one of the more exciting things about Budenholzer is that he does kind of empower those those other players, and I think you have seen development from a number of guys that might be seen as more as uh, as complementary players. Would you would you feel? Or I guess would that be similar to your assessment as you think about these Hawks teams and kind of uh, some of the strides that you've seen? Maybe not the primary option guys make, but some of the complementary players make. Yeah, I think that's the that's the biggest thing. Is I'm not sure how much he's going to help in terms of Giannis's improvement over another coach and over what another coach could have done. If Giannis improves, perhaps it's just sort of natural improvement for, mm-hmm. for one of the best players in the world. And, and, and Middleton, like you said, he's already sort of where he's going to be. Perhaps he, you know, perhaps the offensive philosophy will have uh, Middleton a little bit further out and he'll, he'll be shooting a little, a few more threes and he'll be please, handling the ball please, in some, please. some areas that make more sense in terms of <laughs> a, a more efficient modern offense. But it's it definitely is those role guys, and it's Tony Snell in, in particular. As you know, Hawks University was this this wing factory, and Snell fits everything that Bud would ever want out of a wing. I think, and he's going to be the one in my mind, sort of theoretically on paper, he's the one who should improve the most in terms of his raw skill set from uh, from Bud being the coach. That's interesting, and I think that would please a lot of Bucks fans because uh, I think during the playoffs they see him score two points in a game and wonder why is he on the floor and why did the Bucks give him a four-year, $44 million extension, and um, obviously... I was willing to argue, like, well, he does enough defensively. He's making it tough on Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. But, yeah, like it, it, that is difficult to watch. All right, let's switch to the other side of the ball. Defensively, I think that's... 
I mean, to me, that's the spot where Boonholzer thrives. Like, I understand the kind of development aspect of some of the offensive uh, improvement that's happened in Atlanta with Hawks University and all that. But I feel like defensively, that's the spot where Bucks fans shouldn't really have a ton of questions. Would you agree with that? I think the the only question that you, that you would have as a Bucks fan is that if you you sort of watch how how aggressively those early Hawks teams played, you may watch you may remember those from the from the mm-hmm. sort of 13, 14, 14, 15 days and remember Bud as this aggressive defensive coach. And then, you know, you get worried of like, oh, no, like we just went through this and we don't want, you know, we don't want another guy who's going to give up offensive rebounds and corner threes. And of course, you know, the Hawks had some issues with those and during those years. But once we once the once the team sort of moved on to Howard and Schroeder and had a, a different, you know, a different roster, really. They, he became much more conservative in his defensive schemes. You know, Dwight Howard was not trapping out on the perimeter. He was hanging back in the paint almost every time on, on pick and rolls. And it was very much more, you know, it was, it was much more conservative. It was much more traditional scheme. They still had some issues with corner threes because the wing guys were sort of used to that collapse on the paint and, mm-hmm. and give up the three-pointer. And I think that's that's both part of his scheme and just part of the, the guy's DNA that the, that the Hawks had at the time. But I, I do think that it was it was a key part of of Budenholzer's scheme across all the years was you wall off the paint, collapse into the paint hard, and close out hard if they if they kick it out to the corners. And it's there. I think the Bucks will give up a healthy number of corner threes. Hopefully, it won't uh, it won't come back to bite them as much, as hard as it has. But I, I do think from that perspective, there is going to be some similarities between the Bucks of old and and the Bucks of new. How were the Hawks able to survive that? Because uh, with in Milwaukee, obviously the the big problem has been not only giving up a bunch of corner threes, but you know giving up a bunch of good corner threes, and then also I, I I would guess the largest difference is that the Hawks were able to protect the rim to some extent, and that's something that the Bucks have really struggled with in the last three years. And then all of a sudden they're giving up among the most attempts at the rim and the most corner threes, which that's a bad idea. Um, so h- how do you feel that the Hawks were kind of able to weather the storm of giving up those corner threes? I think it, it had a lot to do with the, the personnel on the team in terms of Al Horford, Paul Millsap, and, and Bazemore, and a lot of the guys who were, you know, who were very who were quick for their position and can get out, you know, can stunt into the lane, can tag a roller, and then sprint back out to the three-point line. And everybody rotated on a string, and the the – the coaching and the the scheme itself was very was aggressive back in the day, and it was very everybody would rotate and everybody could sort of guard every position. And even a guy like Damari Carroll and Kyle Korver, who is not really known for his defense, was long and and quick enough back you know back when he was a little bit younger and mm-hmm. had just these everybody could sort of rotate around and it sort of they made it work. And and the you know Al Horford is no like. Uh, you know, godly rim protector, but everybody was sort of in the, there were five guys between you and the basket every time you had the ball against the Hawks. And it was, you had to get through so many bodies that it made it difficult for, for people to even just get to the rim, much less uh, finish once they got there. Defensively for the Bucks, I think one thing that most Bucks fans look at when they see the roster is, okay, um, 
on on their worst in their worst lineup i think their shortest person would be eric bledsoe but he's got a, a very long wingspan four point guard and then you go up to six eight with chris Middleton, uh tony snell six seven six eight as well uh then Giannis at Giannis <laughs> length uh and then whichever center you decide to choose whether that's John Henson or Thon Maker and you just see all of that length on the floor and uh, I think Bucks fans think switch everything like use that length and just switch and we saw the Bucks do that uh in that first round playoff series against the Celtics how much did Budenholzer use switching and is that something that um whether it was during his more conservative time or his more aggressive time is that something that you've seen in the in the last five years in Atlanta it wasn't a, a key philosophy from him I think it was it was something that when they were aggressive instead of switching it was more trapping and, and trying to get the ball out of out of primary ball handlers and, and hands i think that was the most important thing for them they would have horford up to the level of the ball they would have Millsap up to the level of the ball but the point guard wasn't switching off onto onto the center maybe that had something to do with personnel you know uh, jeff teague and dennis Schroeder aren't the biggest guys like eric bledsoe is and and so maybe that had something to do with it because you know they felt that 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 switch was you know not advantageous for them but they would when they were aggressive, they were trapping really hard, and when they were conservative, they were dropping really hard. And it was, it was, but neither neither time was it a, a particularly high rate of switching. I don't, you know, from what from my memory, I don't, I don't believe that they were a particularly high switching team. They would sometimes switch off ball actions in terms of down screens and uh, and stuff between you know two through four and even two through five when Horford was in the game. I think that was something that they were more uh, more likely to do. But when it was straight, like 1-5 pick and roll, they were either trapping or very conservative in terms of laying Howard back into the paint. It wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of switching. All right. Uh, I'll ask the same question that I ended with with offense. What do you love about Budenholzer's defense? It seems pretty much solid throughout his entire tenure. Um, so what is it that you, you know you really loved about that defense? I think the biggest thing that I really I really loved about it was other than one particular instance in Dennis Schroeder, he pretty much gets everybody to buy into the right scheme and do the right thing, and everybody rotates on a string. And when the team is good and the team was winning, everybody played their role and everybody rotated and everybody guarded everybody, and it was a very sort of aggressive system where everybody was into it and everybody got to learn everybody else's role. And so every just, that's a lot of everybody's, but every player got to learn across the board what it's like to play point guard and play center defensively and you everybody got to do everything and it was really you know other than other than Schroeder who has been a a point of contention with the Hawks for his entire career so far (laughs) you know he was able to get everybody to buy into something like that and and Schroeder is is an enigma you know on his own and perhaps he'll have similar issues with Eric Bledsoe personality wise I'm not you know it's hard to hard to speculate on that without because I don't really know Eric Bledsoe very well Mm -hmm. but with with Bud and Schroeder, I know that that there was a lot of conflict there, and so I think that's both the best thing and possibly you know something that to watch with with Bud as he comes into Milwaukee is you know can can he get somebody like Bledsoe to buy in on on a defensive system that's going to require him to do a lot of different things. All right, um, if I remember. Looking at your Twitter, right? I believe the other day you tweeted something about how you believed Boonholzer would be a good fit. So I think how we're going to end this is, why do you think Boonholzer works in Milwaukee? I think, I mean, 
other than just sort of in general, he was the best coach and Milwaukee's the best job. And though that always is, is a good marriage. I think he, the adaptability and the versatility to his offensive and defensive schemes is the biggest thing that I look at as something that you can, something that Bucks fans can look forward to in terms of winning like this year and next year in terms of like 20, you know, 18, 19 and mm-hmm. 19, 20 during, you know, during Giannis's time uh, prime, they can really, I think this team will be successful with Budenholzer as the head coach. Like I just think wins, you know, playoff series wins. This is, this, this is the best coach for, for that who was on the market and who was available to them. And then, you know, in a big picture, longer term, if they can, you know, if he sticks around past the four year contract that he signed and he can start to develop some of the, the younger guys, even not just Tony Snell, but like Sterling Brown yeah. and, you know, any of the draft picks who come through, you know, maybe he can get something out of DJ Wilson. I'm not particularly high <laughs> on DJ, but, you know, if he could, you know, if anybody can get something out of him, it's going to be Bud or, or somebody else from that, that pop coaching tree, you know, Kenny Atkinson would be a, would be a great fit as well for, for Wilson. But, you know, and Thon Maker, I'm, I'm irrationally high, I think, on Thon Maker. So I think, you know, I, I hope that Budenholzer can get a lot out of him because I'm sort of invested in Thon Maker, you know, <laughs> on Thon Maker Island. I've got, I've got a nice, nice sized mansion on the, on Thon Maker Island over there. So I think, you know, I think that's the, the two sort of big things are the, the short term. He can help them win. He can help them clear up a lot of the low hanging fruit that they have sort of suffered through over the over the last few years and help them sort of take them from, you know, the six, seven, eight seed into the, you know, two, three, four seed in, in the Eastern Conference and really, you know, push push, you know, Cleveland, Boston, Philadelphia in the second round and really, you know, take what Giannis can do and you know, maximize it in the biggest way. And then of course the the long term development of some of the young guys and some of the young guys who aren't even on this team yet. All right. Uh, you mentioned development. We talked about this a little bit before we started recording. I almost forgot to ask you about it. Um, but Hawks University and the the Hawks player development under Bud has been such a huge deal. And uh, we talked about Darvin Ham a little bit on our last podcast. But uh, who are some of those other assistants? Um, I know you. I'm trying to. I think I'd read about uh, Ben Sullivan. I think his name is maybe. Um, but who are, who are some of those assistants? And, and kind of can you tell us a little bit more about Hawks University? Yeah, I mean, I think the. The, the moniker came from back in the day when Quinn Snyder and and Kenny Atkinson were assistants in Atlanta. Now, obviously, they've moved on to head coaching gigs, but they, you know, they continuously re, you know, revamp that that Atlanta assistant staff. And the reports are that that Bud is going to take most of that staff with him. You guys are familiar with Darvin Ham. He was up for the Atlanta job that Lloyd Pierce got, and you know, is going to be Bud's lead assistant probably in in, in Milwaukee. And he's. You know, he's a fantastic coach. I've talked to him a few times and just he's just he's got a, a wealth of energy and knowledge and he you know, he works with all, all sorts of different players and he's he's gonna be a great assistant coach. And then you just sort of look down the list and you there's a you know, he, future head coach after future head coach on the list. Patrick St. Andrews is a really young guy who I think you know could be a head coach someday. Charles Lee is sort of this goofy, interesting, funny guy. I'm not sure that he's gonna leave, but I've, from what I've heard, he's he's sort of on the fence between Atlanta and Milwaukee, and, and he would be a, a nice. He's sort of a nice, light, interesting, funny kind of guy to to outweigh Budenholzer's sort of more serious attitude. And then uh, Taylor Jenkins is is sort of the number three guy, and he's always he's been the number three guy in Atlanta for the last couple of years under Ham and under Budenholzer. He's going to be he's going to be a head coach one day for sure. Like he and and Darvin Ham are are t- are the next two guys or the next 
Kenny Atkinson and Quinn Snyders who are going to come off a of Bud's bench and be a head coach in the league someday. All right. I think that helps out. Um, I think that's all I have for tonight. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's going to be it for us for today on Lockdown Bucks. We will be back on Monday. We'll see if by then we know when a press conference is happening. That has not been announced yet. Um, exactly when that would occur, I would assume after the combines. So probably uh, Monday or Tuesday we'll have that. So uh, when that happens, uh, we will. I will be there covering it, and then uh, we will talk about it here on the podcast. So um, expect that at the start of next week. Not 100% sure on a date yet, but uh, be ready for that, and we will do this all again on Monday. For Frank Madden, I'm Eric Name. This has been Lockdown Bucks. Have a great weekend.